Hey, this is David. Uh, this is not the episode. The distraction's still going to come out on Thursday like normal. Um, but because the Writers Guild struck on Monday, May 1st, I was thinking about, and I went back and listened to the explanation that Michael Schur gave us back on March 9th when he came on the podcast. And I think that while there's a bunch of good stories to read about why writers are striking and sort of the broader situation that created this crisis in Hollywood. I think that the few minutes of explanation that Schur gave us between all the usual dumb bullshit in the episode is still the most lucid and convincing to me description of why this has happened that I've heard. So we wanted to just sort of break that out and release it. You can still go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear me attempting a Lorne Michaels voice or, uh, you know, a bunch of goofy stuff about the New York Post. But I think that what follows is is kind of news you can use from a guy who is on the Writers Guild bargaining committee and really knows what he's talking about. And we're back with Mike Sure, Mike, we should talk to you about your day job because in addition to being a baseball fan, you also uh, you know, are the guy behind like the office in Parks and Recreation in the Good Place in Rutherford Falls. And like, I don't know, half the shows on television. <laughs> Mike, I want to ask you before we talk about the nuts and bolts of television production. You went woke many years ago, and yet you did not go broke. What was your secret? <laughs> <laughs> There's money in going woke, guys. If you just so you just don't know where to find it. What? I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> you didn't notice the executive producer George Soros credit on hacks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I for, I also. I don't believe that we should be using the phrase going woke anymore, for one thing. I know you're joking, but uh, first of all, it was like appropriated from like, as all things are, from like black Twitter slash drag culture. Yes. And it, and it embarrasses me on behalf of just everyone when you hear like Ron DeSantis giving like an angry speech about wokeism. The woke like, mind it, virus. Ugh. Yeah, like I, I, I think... That we should, uh, I think we should. The word itself has ceased to mean anything, and uh, and as like all words in English that cease to mean anything, we should probably just stop using it. But if you're talking about a general sense that like you should give a shit about other people and care about their lives and health and happiness, then I would say yes. I that is a thing that I ha ascribe to and have sought to ascribe to in my personal life for a long time now. I don't think that makes me interesting or unique or special or better than anyone else. But uh, it is fascinating to watch that concept of like empathy essentially now being weaponized and used as a like, we're never going to allow this in Florida or whatever. Right. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never, we will never give a shit about anyone in Florida. I promise you. I'll be honest, Mike. I, I didn't expect you to actually answer that question earnestly and frankly that was quite woke of you to do that so i thank, thank you. you for being able to <laughs> it was <laughs> funny is that it has it, it doesn't mean anything anymore and i think that um conservatives seized on it because it's such a good catch-all term for them to uh sort of use for their overriding ethos of you know the basic message from republicans is like hey listen white guys we're not gonna let anybody else have your shit like mm -hmm. not your money not your jobs, not all those racial epithets you like to say when you're like drinking and stuff like that. We won't let anybody have any of that. And the people who want to take it from you, they're woke. Yeah, it's it, it's funny because they want they want to say it 
They want to say like all of what you just said and then also, you know, the other words. And this is as close, I think, as they've gotten to saying it. And yet there's still like it's not a very good word and they're not very good communicators. So it's just this sort of thing where you're dealing with someone being like, did you just say that that's kind of a woke neighborhood? Like, what do you mean by that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the, and I don't think that they're quite ready to say what they mean by it yet. Uh, yeah. It's time to actually talk about serious showbiz questions uh, because the top part of show business is decidedly unenlightened. I'll use the word unenlightened instead of mm. Netflix, uh, Lost subscribers in aggregate for the first time a year ago. Comcast is no longer letting its customers have Peacock for free. And Warner Brothers Discovery is yanking shows like Westworld off of HBO Max just to save money on residuals. Now, you have more skin in this game than anyone Roth or I know. Do you personally worry about where television as an industry is headed in terms of both how it's managed and how it's consumed? I do. I should say... In the interest of, I suppose, something approaching full disclosure that I'm actually on the, the negotiating committee for the WGA in our upcoming MBA uh, negotiations with the companies. So some of what I say, I'll have to dance around a little bit um, in detail. But uh, yeah, of course, I'm always worried about it. It's a weird business. It has a... Um, it has a, a lot of moving parts that are moving now more and in weirder directions than they ever have moved before. And there is a, this added and pretty unpleasant element of sort of like Wall Street, quasi-venture capital, essentially, Wall Street investment that is demanding in these new business models that profits not only exist, but expand every year relentlessly. And so these companies have been in this arms race to switch from a broadcast model to a subscriber model. And, you know, Netflix, part of the reason Netflix had that brief uh, dip in subscriber numbers is because essentially they have saturated the market. There are very few people in America, for example, that don't have Netflix that could or would ever want to have Netflix. And so... They've kind of, it's a, it's like McDonald's, right? They expanded across the entire nation and they're packed in everywhere they can be packed in. And now it's they're- a saturation only, point is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so now their only choices are increased fees as they have done or add an ad tier, which they have also done, or basically look to other countries, like look to Brazil and look to Argentina and look to South Korea and wherever else they can get their networks up and running. And- as a result, you know, when companies hit these saturation points, and, and again, Netflix and Disney are lapping the field in terms of subscriber bases, a there's a couple sort of residual effects. One of them is the other companies consolidate in order to keep up. So Discovery borrowed something like 50 or $60 billion to buy Warner Brothers, which is an insane thing to do. They don't. They didn't have the money to buy it. Speak for yourself. I did, did that a week ago. They just, oh, I go to the bank, they enough. give me $50 billion. <laughs> so they they are doing the, all that stuff you're talking about of like, they make movies and then they realize that it's probably more beneficial to them to not air the movie and write off the loss in order to drive their debt down than it is like Batgirl. They the did that with Batgirl, correct? With Batgirl, they did there are there are a large number of projects, very expensive projects that have either completed shooting or gotten very close to shooting 
or, uh, or have gotten, have spent a ton of money and they make a really brutal calculation, which is, oh, this is better for us to throw this in the toilet yeah. than it is to actually air it. There's one that we were watching that like, it. not only did they pull the pr- plug on, apparently like while it was basically in post-production, the show Minx, which is on HBO Max. Yeah. Very yeah. funny. They pulled the whole thing. It's it just wasn't on the streaming service a yeah, day sure. after we had watched an episode, and then like we read that there was a whole other season that they were making that like also may never see the light of day, yes. or it'll get just like quietly put on Tubi in a year and a half. Right? They might sell it to some other place to try to make a little money or something, but generally, they're yeah, they're just killing these things. And when you think about the the irony here is that the residual model on streaming is pretty bad. Like the amount that they have to pay the artists who made the shows, the actors and writers and directors is pretty low amount of money. And you, you're like, God, it's not even worth, they don't even want to pay that. Like they don't even want to pay the lower uh, residual model money to just keep a show in their library and available for people to watch. They'd rather just throw it in the garbage and save a couple million bucks or whatever over the lifetime of the show. That is, I think is a, is a kind of betrayal that is symbolic to me because the promise of this new world, right, was everything that we now make can be viewed forever by people. People can discover shows from a long time ago uh, and and fall in love with them because they're just in a library on one right. of these streaming services. Yeah, it doesn't like, have to, like, get aired it, on A&E at the time exactly. that you're watching A&E. Yeah, and there are there are you know over the pandemic, your, my kids are a little younger than your kids, Drew. But under, over the pandemic, my kids discovered a bunch of old shows that they really liked. My daughter watched all of Gilmore Girls and really loved. Oh, it. my daughter watched all of it too, like twice. Yeah. I was like, God right. damn! And and that's great. Like that should be the case. Like that was the promise of this new world. Was this is the in demand era, and we can go back and watch all these things. And for it, it to save a tiny amount of money, they're now just selectively going through and just culling their libraries and just tossing shit in the garbage. So that's not, is that the worst part of this new system? Not by a long shot, but it is indicative of this penny pinching uh, Wall Street kind of lower our debt, lower our financial exposure anywhere we can kind of universe that is causing a lot of trouble and you know again going back to my 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 non-day job my my uh moonlighting job as a member of the WGA negotiating committee what we're fighting against is the natural progression of this stuff which has reached a point where in this insatiable thirst for profit and for uh lowering debt and all that stuff they're looking anywhere they can to squeeze uh costs and one of the places they found is labor Labor is a cost, is a is a red item on their uh, ledgers, and they're trying to to squeeze labor, and that's what always happens in these industries: is labor gets screwed, and so we're now at the point where we have to push back. The thing that I am thinking in hearing you explain all of this, it's sort of I don't want to like link everything to our experiences, you know, with uh, bad management um, in our past, but that I wonder where this all goes like from what you're describing the idea that like if every show is fundamentally a thing that or every product every movie whatever that these studios are making is the sort of thing where they're doing it under duress and are just kind of like oh look at all this money that we spent on this look at all this money we're going to lose paying out 
some tiny percentage of, uh, you know, the money that we make for airing it again. Like, at some point, what do do you think these studios want the future to look like? Like, is the idea just like, well, we're only going to make hits? Or, like, there's, it doesn't feel not just, like, realistic to me, although it doesn't feel realistic to me. It is also just sort of, I can't see where this sort of inimical pose relative to the product that you make and sell. I don't know how you square that. Like, I don't know what exactly they see a future looking like in that way. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, And I think the answer is that it differs a little bit company to company. For example, if you are Disney or Disney Fox, as they're now sort of casually called, you don't worry about that so much because you know that every single parent in the world forever will have to subscribe to your service. They need Disney animation, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar. Like they, they were very smart in the way, I mean, they, part of these, they, that's just their company, but their acquisitions were really smart, really targeted. I mean, they bought, they bought Lucasfilm for $4 billion dollars. Think of how, and at the time it was like, wow, that's a lot of money. Think of how much money they've already made from just owning the Star Wars IP, how many shows they've made. They bought Marvel for, I don't know what they bought Marvel for, but I mean, that's tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. They have no money from that one. Yeah. It was like Roger Corman owned those rights. Yeah. It was nothing. So, but then you look at the company that I work for, which is Comcast Universal, which has been around for a very long time. They just don't have that must have IP. They just don't have those those tentpole franchises that are going to keep people subscribing forever and ever and ever. So they've had to essentially build their streaming service from the ground up. They have a couple things, right? They have some some classic universal movies that people kind of care about. They have uh the Illumination folks, uh, you know, the the uh minions Despicable movies me. and stuff like that, Despicable yeah. Me stuff like that. But are you going to spend 10, 12, 15 bucks a month every single month for the rest of your life for that? I'm not sure. So what's happening is they are all realizing that it is way more um, expensive to just develop a billion shows than it is to just buy a company that already has a billion shows and pieces of IP that they care about. That's why Warner Brothers bought, or Discovery bought Warner Brothers. It's why there are continuing rumors that... Um, that Comcast Universal is going to merge with Viacom or Paramount or something like that. They're they're all fighting to get to a point where their product line is indispensable to the consumer, not just now, but five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. The reason that's hard is that it takes a really long time to build a library of content that people care about, and it's really expensive to buy one. So they're caught in this weird zone where they need enough stuff that is readily available for everyone uh, to warrant charging them what they want to charge. But they also are being told, essentially by Wall Street, if you don't increase your profits now very fast, more, more, more continually, your stock price is going to tank. And all those people who have who get paid largely in stock options and in, in future bonuses based on stock price are going to suffer, and they don't like suffering. So 
it's it's this weird gray area where they're, I don't think they're 100% sure, some of them, do we do this by acquisition? Do we do it by development? How do we spend billions of dollars on new content and also still have billions of dollars coming in while, because some of those shows are destined to fail as, as some of, you know, the, if you hit, it's sort of like baseball. I think if you hit 300 in a given year, if three out of every 10 of your shows or movies are hits, that's a good year. And that's hard to do. Not everybody, they have, there's, you know, when I first started at SNL a million years ago, GE owned NBC. And it was the worst possible corporate parent because GE is a company that was relentlessly focused on like 9 to 11% profit growth in every division every year. And from time to time, every year at some point, I can't remember when this was, at what point in the year it was, but GE would have its, you know, corporate annual meeting. And we would see these lying around the offices. There would be these like big glossy books that were like the the GE year-long profit report. And you would flip through it and like section one would be like locomotives and section two would be <laughs> jet engines and section three would be appliances and section four would be financial services. And like section 11 in the back was entertainment and it, sketch you know, comedy yeah it's and, really easy it to imagine like, that meeting being like well are, like why is our like laser guided missile division doing so much better than our fart joke division <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's quite literally what it was and as a business a if you are if your goal is relentless 9 to 11% profit growth year over year, every year in every division, you shouldn't own an entertainment company because there's going to be fallow years. There's going to be years where you don't have a Fast and Furious movie come out and y- instead you try a bunch of stuff and it doesn't work and you lose, you are flat or you're down. And so these companies now are trying to expand at such a rate and are trying to compete in a landscape that basically rules out the uh, possibility of failure in any six month or 12 month span. And that's just not an achievable goal in the entertainment industry. You are going to have crappy years. It's just part of the deal because it's not, you're not making jet engines. You're not making laser guided weapons. You're making art and like it or not, sometimes the art doesn't work. People don't respond to it. They don't buy it. They don't like it. So, and sometimes that art goes woke. And uh, whoa, well, no, the worst, we're not doing it. Possible fate. But that's, I, it's funny. I think that's well said, but that was the thing when, as you were describing all this, where I was like, I'm not, the thing I'm not hearing is like, where do you make stuff? Like, where do you, like, where's the actual, like, creative aspect of this? And I guess the answer is that it's like, you know, under previous ownership or it is just like not, it is getting crowded out in a way that, it, you know, it probably always was, but now is getting crowded out uh, in a way that it obviously is, uh, putting you on the cusp of a major labor action, I guess you would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, and and it it is getting crowded out, but it's also, I don't know if this even makes sense to say, but it's getting, like, crowded in because part of this new process is, look, Netflix built its company on the back of other companies. They went around to all these studios and said, hey, you know those old shows that you have in your library that no one cares about anymore? We'll buy them all for a dollar an episode. And all these companies were like, great, free money, right? No one wants the uh, to, right now, it's not really helping us to have home improvement in our library. Like we've made our eight rounds of syndication oh, 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 oh. deals. 
<laughs> and so, yeah, sure, you can have it for a dollar an episode. Great. So then suddenly Netflix became this clearinghouse of like stuff that you might want to watch, like just old shows, old sitcoms, old movies, whatever. And before the company, the other companies knew what was happening, Netflix had whatever, 25 million subscribers paying seven or nine or 11 bucks a month. And then they started making their own stuff and their own stuff became popular. And suddenly they were the biggest game in town. I mean, it, it cannot be that the history of this era will show that Netflix is the single most innovative and disruptive company that I think this town has ever seen. They upset the balance and the order of a century old business in like five years. They completely changed everything and everybody else has been scrambling to catch up ever since. For the better? So, well, I don't know if it's for the, it depends on who you mean by that. If stockholders, yes. Uh, to some extent, artists, uh, in the sense that like, Shows that could never get made anywhere else suddenly were able to get made, potentially. But well, now... I, mean, I, I know it's better than for, like, Finn Wolfhard. I'm just thinking about, like... <laughs> yeah. Like, consumer... Yeah, consumers and artists in general. Cons I would say... Uh, I would say it's 50-50. I think that half of the formula here is that it's better than it used to be, and half is that it's worse. Part of what they did, though, is they forced these companies to silo off. In the old days... Your, the whole point of working in a studio was the studio paid for and helped you make your shows, and then you could go around and sell them to whoever, whatever buyer you wanted. That's why right. famously Friends was a Warner Brothers show that aired on NBC, right? But now these companies all have silos, and they don't want to buy anything from, their, from a place that isn't their home company because they don't own it. They don't own all of the points on the back end and all the rights to it and everything else. And so... You know, it was always a little bit that way. They always preferred to keep things in house, but they would sell happily sell things to other companies. Now, Netflix has no studio attached to it. So if you work for Netflix, Netflix just does your thing. And they don't want to pay the vig, basically, of having a legacy studio attached to a project. So all of these companies are siloing off, which means if you are working for one of those companies, if you can't sell your stuff, get your home turf company interested in making the thing that you want to make it's exponentially harder to sell it anywhere else than it used to be. And in fact, there are companies that can't make deals. They have, not, they have no pattern deal to buy something from an outside studio. So I love FX as a network. I think FX is great. Universal, which is where I work, essentially can't make a deal at FX. You can't produce a show through Universal and sell it to FX because they can't figure out the economics of it in a way that makes both of them happy. So there are whole swaths of the entertainment landscape that are cut off to people who work at studios. And that, generally speaking, is obviously anti-competitive and bad for business. I like that it made it more complicated, but also worse. I also, <laughs> but, I was that was very interesting. And I have to move on to the guy of the week. But before we do that, I just do, I do want to note that there was a, a hidden Michael, Michael Scott-ism in what Michael just said, which was he was, like I can picture Michael Scott saying, instead of crowding people out, let's crowd people in. Like that <laughs> felt very. I liked that. I liked the disruption. That is that. very. It is exactly as meaningless as something Michael Scott would say. I yeah. feel like this, as someone who's had to do it, you spend enough time in uh, bargaining committee meetings, sitting across the table from uh, your employer's attorneys, and sooner or later, your brain will be damaged. No, no, I, 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 no he, it was a very, very well articulated <laughs> no. point. So I didn't want to go back and be like, "Hey, that one thing you said that was really funny and stupid, Mike." Ah. <laughs> <laughs> 